I mean, slow fashion is just the term that we're giving it now. And we're not even really agreeing on what that term means yet, right? right? I mean, this has just been going on since the beginning of civilization. We we used to value the fiber. And if we had to still, you know, grow the plant or, or tend the animal and then extract the fiber and process the fiber and weave the fabric and dye the cloth and sew the cloth, we would not just throw it away. Absolutely. You know, I mean, if I think of my grandmothers in upstate New York making their quilts, you know, a hundred years ago, I mean, they weren't going to call it like creative redesign, right? right? <laughs> or like, <laughs> I mean, they weren't, but that's what they were doing. and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery and welcome to season three. We're back. We're, We're back. back. Season three, episode one. If you missed last, the well, it wasn't last week's because it was recorded a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks. We recorded an episode zero where we take you through what's happening for season three and a little bit of an update on what we're doing. But this is the first, I don't know, proper episode. First uh, episode featuring a guest. An interview, exactly. And the interview will be with Katrina Rodebaugh. Yes, it is. So I know uh, about 2,000 of you got a little sneaky peek preview of this episode when it really dropped. Originally yes. dropped. Yes, I was a little bit slow when we decided that we needed to pull back on um, on work. For... I do remember that morning. It was like, ah! I might have said a swear word. Um, what actually happened to that episode? Did it disappear after that? Or do people, people could have listened to it? If it had been downloaded to people's play, like their, their apps, okay. yeah. then they could continue listening to yeah. it. So sneak, maybe sneak a handful peek. of you have sneak listened to it. Sneak peek into season three. But, um, and it's funny because the feedback that I got, I even got some comments. Po- positive feedback. Yeah, yeah. before That's I good. pulled the pin on this episode. And you know what? It is such a cracking way to start this season even if it is a couple of months after we, we recorded it. Because Katrina is, um, she's a fibre artist. She is a slow fashion um, advocate. And she's also just a phenomenally resourceful human being. Um, and really what we do in this conversation is take the idea of slow fashion. And to be honest, that's something that I've, I've more recently kind of thought of as a bit of a crock almost. Um, not in and of itself and not the ethos of people making slow fashion, but because it simply gave us another thing to buy. All right, I'm pretty naive here. What's yeah. slow fashion? Well, that, this is the thing. This is the conversation that we have. Mm. To me, the, the essence of slow fashion is much the same as the essence of slow living, getting really, really mindful about our choices, about the materials that we use, about how things are created, by whom, right. how those people are looked after, you know, that's really the, the essence. Isn't that just like sustainable fashion? Sure. I mean, there, someone smarter than me would be able to tell you that there are definitions that overlap between those, yep. those two things. Yep. Um, but slow fashion has really sprung up as another way of, sh- of keeping up with a different set of Joneses. Uh, okay. And I'm not saying don't do it. I'm really yeah. not. But all I, all I think that if we just replace our consumerism habit of fast fashion to one of slow fashion, if we're mindless about it, if we're just looking for the next trend, if we're just doing it because Instagram told us to, yeah. then that's not actually slow. Even if the people who are 
making the the clothes are are actually looked after and their welfare is taken into mm. account. You know, so I, I don't think that it's necessarily that we're living mindfully if we buy slow fashion okay. in and of itself. Okay. But Katrina really subverts this whole idea of slow fashion and takes it back to what feels like a, um, it kind of feels like a, what's the word when people rise up? A revolution. Revolution, baby. Yeah, it's a revolution because she is. She went on a fashion fast in 2013 and decided that she would not be buying anything. She would mend, she would make do. And that has continued through to now. She was only going to do it for a year. Uh, and we talk about what thrift shopping looks like for a mother of two kids. We look at how she personally has um, come to champion mending, mm. visible mending particularly, and we talk about this pair of jeans that she has. You can see it over on the website. It's the most phenomenal pair of jeans that has been mended something like 15 times with all these beautiful patches. And it's sort of really flipping the script on what fashion is and what we can do with the resources that already exist. We don't need to go out and buy new. We can do so much in such a slow and mindful way with what already exists. That's so sweet. It's very cool. Yeah. I really, really, really dug this conversation a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, if you want to learn more about Katrina, you can head to her website. It's katrinarodabau.com. Um, but if the spelling has tripped you up, head over to this, the show notes at slowyourhome.com slash season three. And all of the links will be there. We talk about a few books and a few other resources. She's also on Instagram and really worth a follow if you still use uh, the old gram. Absolutely. Last last episode, episode zero, we spoke about subscribing to the slow post and I encourage you to do that if you haven't already. They are Brooke's weekly love letters. Slow living love letters. And I've got something really fun to um, launch actually to initially at least to subscribers of the slow post for next season's podcast. We're doing something completely different. And I want to get people's involvement. Mm. So if you're curious about that, head over to the website, um, slowyourhome.com slash slowpost and sign up. I feel like this season will be a season of an announcements. Okay. Every single uh, episode almost we're going to be announcing some something new. You are pronouncing future announcements. That's, it. that's exactly right. But that's enough announcements for today. Enjoy the episode. Well, Katrina, it is so lovely to speak with you. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for joining me. Uh, the irony is is quite obvious to me that I spent most of my time in the States and Canada talking to people in Australia on the podcast, and now I'm back in Australia oh. and I'm talking to people <laughs> in the States, but I'm so glad we can make the time zones work. Good, yeah. Well, maybe you're just catching up with your future self in a way, well, right? I like, you're like that. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> no, I think we've got a lot, I mean, so much that we could we could discuss because of your work in slow fashion as a fibre artist, as a writer, as a crafter. Uh, you have a, uh, a perspective on slow living and more specifically slow fashion that I haven't had the opportunity to talk with someone with your kind of perspective before. So I'm really interested to dive straight into it because for me um, – Fashion is an interesting thing. I was very into fashion before I discovered the slow living movement. Mm. But, you know, it was all fast fashion. It was all trends based. It was all, uh, you know, keeping up with whatever shiny Joneses were in the magazines of that month. Yeah. And then once I discovered slow living, I moved away from it completely because for me, I couldn't find any intention with it. Even with, with ethical clothing and sustainable clothing, it still felt, so much of it still felt, 
you know, based heavily in consumerism. So when I discovered slow fashion and the work that you and, you know, people in the, in the movement are doing, it really spoke to me because there's so much intention with what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it really is the, the philosophy of slow living wrapped up in, in clothing and how we wear it and what we do with it. So can I ask, what was your, your personal introduction to slow fashion? Um, yeah, well, I, I love everything you're saying about slow living and slow fashion. I feel like there's such a crossover. My introduction to slow fashion is kind of like a multi-layered answer. I was an environmental studies major in college, and then I went to work in arts organizations and through my work in arts organizations came into fiber arts. But I had sort of considered them separate in some ways. Like I sort of sort of thought of sustainable living as my lifestyle and then fiber arts and a lot of like community-based arts organizations as my professional work. And, you know, I'd use recycled fibers in my uh, fine artwork and things like that. But I, I don't think I really thought of them as true like companions until the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in um, April 2013. And after that, I thought I was starting a one-year art project called um, Make Thrift Mend. And it was really just a way for me to wrap my head around how I could create Uh, solutions in my own life around fashion that felt like they were in line with sustainable fashion, sustainable living. And that was six years ago. And I'm still doing the fast just with like uh, lifted the parameters a little bit here (laughs) and there. Yeah. So I don't think it's uncommon for fashion in many ways to feel kind of outside of the realm of sustainable living, oddly enough. That, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think when we discover this idea of slow or sustainable living, it feels like it needs to be all-encompassing immediately, and that often feels mm-hmm. overwhelming to people. Yes, you know, it yes. feels like well, I can't, I can't do all of that. You know, I don't have the bandwidth to do that all at once. Yeah. Uh, so I yeah. mean, to hear you say that, even even with that background, it took you time to bring those together. Oh. is um, yeah, it's heartening. I think absolutely. I mean, I think a lot about like the sort of triad of our basic needs. So you know, clothing and food and shelter. And if you look at sustainability in terms of food, I mean, slow food has been around for decades now, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that thinking around organic food and um, unprocessed food, local food, a lot of those phrases have kind of been, at least here in America, you know, that they've been in our psyche for maybe, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. Right. And then even around sustainable living, you know, there's solar panels and there's high efficiency washers and dryers, right? And there's like these lead platinum buildings. And that's maybe, in I don't, I, my history could be wrong here, but I'm going to say that's really in the last like 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it really feels to me like fashion is kind of the last one in, in that sort of triad of our basic needs. Um, and I think there's a lot of different reasons for that, but of course, there are some folks who have been doing this and not calling it slow fashion for Absolutely. their whole lives, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I think this moment that we're in right now and this momentum around the moment, I really feel like a lot of that uh, goes back to the Rana Plaza factory collapse six years ago um, and the kind of international attention that brought to um, the conditions in which garment workers were, were working in. Mm. Um, in factories. And I mean, it's once you, you hear those stories and you see those images, uh, it's 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 impossible to unsee them. It's impossible to exactly. unhear the stories and unknow what was happening there when, exactly. you know, when it collapsed and what continues to happen throughout other other factories in other cities. That's right. Now, when you when you began your your fashion fast, what mm-hmm. did that look like? I mean, what were your first steps? 
Well, at the time, I was living in a very small one-bedroom apartment in Oakland, California, a very urban area, with my husband and our first son. And my husband and I both worked from home. So physically, it looked like this very (laughs) small apartment where we both had our studios in the house. And I had left my day job in an arts gallery when I had my son. So this uh, he's about to turn eight. So this was about six years ago. He's about two. So I was still spending a lot of time with him, you know, out in the parks and on the sidewalks and things like that. And I tore my jeans, just like playing on the, you know, on the sidewalk and drawing with chalk and the very sort of active life of having a toddler in in an urban space. And because I had had made this declaration that I wouldn't buy any new clothing for one year, and instead I would make simple garments, uh, support secondhand and mend what I already owned. And it was really that mending part and of the jeans that were tearing, you know, as I was out playing with my son, that I taught myself to mend. And that was a launching point for me in the work because I realized I could use my background as a fiber artist to mend my clothes and I could use basic design to think about mending, patching and stitching. How, how did that make you feel? I mean, did, was that a revelation for you that, you know, that was something you could do very easily or relatively easily? Absolutely. Yeah, it was an absolute revelation. I, I, it was one of those moments where it's like the light bulb goes off and you realize, oh my gosh, I can do this. Mm. You know, it's like this sort of liberation and empowerment and permission all at the same time. And I think, you know, my mom was very crafty growing up. My mom and my dad were both fairly crafty. And so my mom would mend my pants, but it would be those iron-on floral patches, and I hated them. (laughs) (laughs) I just hated them, you know. I mean, bless her for trying to keep my clothes, you know, in in wear for longer. But I hated the texture mostly of that adhesive patch on the pants. And so when I discovered Sashiko mending and um, that you didn't have to have the adhesive, that was just a huge light bulb for me. It was like, oh my gosh, of course you don't have to use glue, right? You could just use the the stitching and the patching. Right, because um, your, your your jeans, your mended jeans are so beautiful. Thank you. They really are. I mean, some of, I know you said one of your, your pairs you've mended maybe 12 or 14 times and they just yeah. have this, this life stitched into them. They're really phenomenal uh, and yeah, I, I love really them. Yeah, they really do. Thank you. They do feel like a journal in a lot of ways. You know, it's like I'm actually wearing them now. And, you know, it's kind of I find like this tracing of stories. And when you've held on to a garment for several years, also, you have all these memories of wearing the garment in in different places. Right. Particularly if it's one you really like. So, yeah, I do feel like they kind of take on a life of their own at some point. Was there anything that that surprised or, or challenged you in that first year of your fashion fast? Yes, many things. I mean, first of all, I was sort of um, anxious, right? I was kind of weary of doing it. I remember Mm. I did it for like a whole month before I told anyone (laughs) because I just wasn't sure. Like, could I commit to this for a whole year? And it turned out... I was sort of anxious about like, what if I need something? Where will I find it? Right. Or looking at kind of social patterns. My mom lived in New York. We lived in California. When she came to visit, what if she wanted to like go browsing one Mm -hmm. afternoon while my husband had the little one, right? Like things like that. And it turns out that we could just as easily go out to lunch and then like go into a bookstore. (laughs) And that was totally fine. And this sort of like, will I need something? And that first year, this so this was also six years ago. It was much harder to find certain basics and certain undergarments than it is right. now. So for the first two years of the fast, I'd say, I kind of went without, right? Like mm-hmm. I just would wear the thing until I couldn't wear it anymore because there just weren't the same resources. 
and I just leaned really hard into what I already owned. But things like leggings, organic leggings, you know, underwear, bras, socks, things like that, I can find much more easily in the last two years than I could when I first started um, because there's just more options in terms right. of organic cotton, sustainably made. One of the big unforeseen changes, I think two things. I very quickly stopped worrying about the trends. And I realized how it had almost been a source of worry before Mm. that, right? And I realized that it didn't matter if the thing was sort of on point with with fashion because I needed it to last for a long time. And I had a really limited way in which I could get it. So that was interesting to sort of, it's like, you think it's going to be really hard to exercise, but it's just hard like getting to the yoga studio, right? right? Or it's, (laughs) it's actually just hard getting your sneakers on to take a run, right? Like once you get into the habit of it. So that was interesting. And then secondly, when we moved from California to New York uh, three years ago, it was such a huge climate change for Mm -hmm. us. And that was pretty, that was a pretty big undertaking with two small kids. Um, Also, I didn't, in California, I had my sort of built-in network of friends with kids who were a little bit older and I'd get their hand-me-downs. And when we moved here, it it took maybe a year or two until I was sort of in that network of hand-me-downs. And I just started, so I just started looking for most of like our winter gear secondhand. And for the kids, I found quite a bit because, you know, most kids can only wear it for a season. So it's actually still in pretty good shape, even secondhand. You touch on a really important point, I think, because maybe people listening who do have young kids would think, well, that's, I mean, that's, I can see the the, the point for adult clothes, but kids move through their clothes so quickly. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, shopping secondhand for kids is a pos- more than a possibility. I mean, it, it's yeah. it makes sense because they grow out of things before, typically before they have a chance to to wear them out. The the thing that I think gets in the way for many people is that it takes more time. It's easier mm-hmm. to pop into you know Target and pick up whatever they need all in one go. So mm-hmm. I mean, how did you? strike that balance, I guess, between, uh, because I mean, the opposite of slow, slow living really is convenience living. And that's what Mm. we're up against with these Mm -hmm. shifts is the built in convenience factor that we're also used to. So, I mean, was that something that you really had to overcome or was it once you'd made the decision, it was simply part of the process that you had to go through? That's a really good question. And I love that phrasing of that um, sort of slow or thoughtful living is up against convenience, because I think that's a really succinct way of putting it. You know, I have been a vegetarian since I was 17 Mm -hmm. and no one else in my family was a vegetarian. And so I feel like in some ways that was kind of this foray for me Mm -hmm. into this like uncharted territory, just in terms of like, I can remember in those first, and my whole family were vegetarian now. And so I can remember those first few years of like going into a restaurant and being like, well, what can I eat here? Right? Like, is there anything I can eat? And then, you know, I moved away and lived in big cities and suddenly had all of this amazing vegetarian food, you know, available to me. So then it no longer felt like a restriction. It felt like this sort of guide or philosophy um, that felt really abundant. And then I started to cook, right? So then I realized, oh, now I could make really wonderful vegetarian food too. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, it is a journey. And so that first year of my fast was much clumsier than than I am now, because now I have my processes in place and I know where to look for things. I know when to look for them. So just back to the kids, what I tend to do 
is it's kind of like old school shopping in a way like before school, like, you know, the end of August or early September, as our seasons start to change, I'll go to my local thrift shops and I'll look for kids. And then when the summer starts to change, like April or May here, when it starts to get warm again, I'll go again. Mm -hmm. So I find I'm really only shopping for them twice a year. And now of course there are always exceptions and, you know, I'm not going to pretend that there aren't, but in general, I kind of have just systematized it to that's when I go. And I have two boys and they're three years apart. So I'm also fortunate in that the older clothes get saved for the little one. So I know that, you know, at least they're going to be worn twice, but a lot of times they're secondhand when they come in. And then, yeah, I do have friends who will drop bags off. I just yesterday had a friend text me a pair of cute little rain boots, you know, did I want them, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. So then I think you do kind of fall into your networks and my kids are young. I I imagine it might be different when they're teenagers and they have, you know, much more of an opinion about their own style. Right. But I'm hopeful we can work through that too. Well, I mean, I think you're, you're providing them with the example of what it looks like and and the reasons why you're doing it. So, I mean, my kids aren't there yet. They're, you know, a little younger than teenagers, but I'm hopeful that even if they go and explore and, you know, become typical teenagers, they will return back to the examples that we as parents set them when they're younger. Yeah, that's my hope. Totally. And that that's an option. I mean, I think for a lot of us, when I first started learning about zero waste living, it was, again, I was just like, and I'm, we don't have a zero waste home. I mean, I aim for a low waste home, but we mm-hmm. don't have, I don't claim to have a zero waste home. But again, it was just like this, this explosion went off in my head where you realize, oh my gosh, this is an option. Yes. There are people who are doing this, right? And, and so then, you know, you start to calculate in things like each family's economics and their budgets and their lifestyles and their geography. And, you know, I live in a very small town. I have to drive at least a half an hour to get to the health food store and they don't have a gigantic bulk section. You know, it's like everybody has their own specifics. But just knowing that it's possible, that's what lights the fire. And then you can kind of figure out, well, how can I make this possible for me? So maybe it's not zero waste, but maybe it's lower waste. And right. Or maybe it's not completely not using fast fashion, but maybe it's really lowering fast fashion. Maybe there's that one pair of pants your kids love at whatever store. So you get that pair of pants, but there are other things that you can find secondhand or you can make or you can mend, you know, and keep them, keep them wearing them. Yeah, I think that that flexibility in uh, you know not being so so black and white, all or nothing with the yes. philosophy is really important because I don't know about you, but whenever I have have done that and really gone gone hard into something and said, well, you know, a hundred percent will will do and nothing less, I inevitably come up against life and circumstances, yes. and that causes me to feel like a failure. And then you know, mm. instead of continuing with as as good an effort as I can give it, I kind of give it up completely. Yeah, and it's not changing anything. Yeah. And I think too, right. It's like perfectionism. It's just like, it never really is our friend. And so I think when I find that in sustainable living or in, in sustainability, and maybe because I spent so long working in the arts, I just have this like automatic reaction of, this kind of part of like shutdown, right? Mm -hmm. Because it just feels really judgmental. It feels really unwelcoming. It feels um, like it's a door that's closing instead of one that's opening. Mm -hmm. But if I can switch that to think about, okay, I live here in this time frame, in this phase of industrialization, and it's a linear economy. We're trying to create more circular systems, but it's a linear economy, right? And so I'm living within that. And if I can sort of acknowledge that and think, okay, what's the best that I can do? And where are the areas that are really going to be hard for me? And for me right now, that's usually about location. 
because I live in a small town, right? And there's only certain things that are available. But I get to have a great big garden and I have chickens and bees in my backyard. And those are things I couldn't do when I lived in an urban space. So, you know, my relationship to my herbs and my vegetables and my um, produce, we have also a a farm stand right around the corner, organic farm. So, you know, I have access in that way, whereas I don't necessarily maybe have access to all the independent shops or specialty shops or things that I used to. So, yeah, I think it's always a trade-off. And and I think we we really have to kind of stay away from perfectionism and and open the doors to see how it can be relevant for for people of all all different types of, of lifestyles. Right. That's the interesting thing about the social mediaization of these movements mm. is that, yeah. you know, it's so easy to present this idyllic, all-or-nothing kind of lifestyle in little squares mm-hmm. on a grid. And mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think it's a bad thing to spread the message of slow fashion, for example, or slow living, but I do think that it really does hamper people's particularly their initial efforts, because they're mm-hmm. like, well, I don't look like this blogger and, you know, my house doesn't right. look like this and I haven't managed to fit all of my waste in a jar for a year. And, you know, right. uh, it's great for inspiration up to a point, but I, I do worry that it doesn't actually represent life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the trick with that is, I mean, particularly with social media, like with Instagram or Facebook, or I'm not really on Twitter much, but I imagine, I mean, I think so much of it at this point are small businesses running their businesses online. And so for a lot of people, they're thinking a lot more about branding and marketing and, you know, the sort of like cohesiveness of their content and maybe less about that kind of like connection. And, and it's a struggle. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to necessarily show a pile of my dirty laundry physically, right. even though that might be really interesting to see what you know, we've worn <laughs> for the week, actually think about it. But like, you know, I, but I do think that that is really um, something to navigate both for people who are producing the content and for people who are absorbing it. And most of us are, are doing both, you know, but yeah, I mean, I try to really kind of uh, show the cracks uh, in my writing and also sometimes like in the stories part of Instagram, mm-hmm. because I think it's important to realize that like, I'm a real person. I'm a mom. I have two kids. They're actually downstairs, like playing a game with my husband on the other side of the house. So you can't hear them, you know, <laughs> like right now while I'm doing this interview. Like, I think that there are, there's like, there is a kind of a lot of smoke and mirrors, but that's a, that's a trick that we're sort of navigating right now as a culture. But I think they the like plus side of that is that I am in this tiny town of 2000 people in upstate New York and I have access to this inspiring content from all over the world, you know? Um, and I find inspiration by folks from all over the world in terms of sustainable living and fiber arts. And that didn't exist, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So, um, yeah, I think we're finding our way. I think we can do it though. I'm hopeful. (laughs) So am I. I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, because what I do see are communities of people who come together Mm -hmm. based on a passion or an interest in something particular, you know, and when you can create a community that is open and inclusive and, and, uh, you know, is in place not to dictate what something should look like, but to inspire and offer options and, you know, different perspectives. I think that's such a positive thing. And as you say, people who may otherwise feel isolated in their, in their physical communities can actually feel a part of something and that helps promote change um, from within. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now I wanted to ask you um, 
so many things, but one of the, the things I noticed over on your Instagram feed actually is the work that you're doing with natural dyes. Yes. The colors you are producing are so stunning. Oh, good. Thank They're you. They're really beautiful. Uh, can you tell me a bit, what, I mean, what, what does that involve? I know you, you grow and forage some of the, the, um, the materials you use to dye on your property. Is that a new thing that you're, you're kind of moving into? Um, yeah, well, I think again, like since we've moved here, I just have one of the resources I have is space and land. Um, and so I get to experiment with things. I've always had, not always, I guess when we lived in Brooklyn, <clears throat> had like a very tiny container garden, you know, just like the pots that fit on yeah. our um, steps or whatever. I had like some herbs growing. Um, and then when we lived in Oakland, we had two small garden beds, like or like traditional size garden beds, like four by eight um, feet garden beds in the backyard. So, you know, there's not a lot of experimenting you can really do when your gardening space is at such a premium. I did experiment, but it was like, of course, we'd have tomatoes, right? And things like that. Yes. But now I have space that I can just say, oh, let's see how this herb will grow or let's see how this dye plant will grow. And I can yield enough from it that I can, you know, do one pot or that kind of thing and then say, oh, yeah, that's a dye I want to keep working with um, and foraging too. So I was actually foraging for plants when we lived in Oakland and I just identified like a handful of plants that I could find in my urban landscape. And I started to pay attention to when they were blooming and I'd go out and I'd harvest enough to dye one or two garments. So I was doing that. Um, I just don't feel like I was maybe doing it quite to the same scale. Also, when we lived in this small apartment, I had my first son and then got pregnant for my second. Mm -hmm. And I had like one pot and like one dye pot <laughs> and like I just had like a very small place. So I, I had like a small amount of tools, you know, that I could use. And now I have like a whole cupboard full of my dye tools and they're separated from our kitchen tools. Right. So I think just some like circumstantial changes like that have just allowed me to dive into it more. So yeah, I grow, you know, plants in the garden and I forage for things in our landscape. And then I also pervert, preserve food scraps because we're in such a cold climate and there's really no foraging or very little foraging here from like December until like now, like mm -hmm. April, the food scraps and things that I can dry and use in the winter are really valuable to me because there's not a lot of other color around in terms of plants. So that's been great. And it's, I feel like it's in many ways kind of like, um, it was like this passionate thing that happened. It was like this, I fell in love with natural dyeing and I was not expecting that. I knew like the mending, I had that aha moment. Okay. Like I'd been stitching for a long time, working with fibers and I used to work as a bookbinder. So that was kind of obvious to me, but the natural dyeing, I feel like it just grabbed a hold of me and it was just like, it was just true love. <laughs> So yeah, that's really been wonderful and, and something I still feel like I'm doing a lot of experimenting with. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the idea of experimentation just across the board I yeah. think, because it's playful, you know, and you get to approach these things with curiosity rather than a result that you really want to see at the end. You know, you just absolutely, say, absolutely. And that's one thing I also love of the plants, like somebody who cooks, you know, there's so much variation in terms of when the plant was harvested, where the plant was grown, if the plant was dried or used fresh, 
what kind of water you're working with, um, the mordants you're using, the fibers you're dyeing with. So there's so much variation. And I feel like that really that just lends itself to that experimentation mm. because, you, you know, I can get a range of color and I can have a good sense of like the shades of gold that goldenrod will give me or the shades of pink that avocado pits will give me. But there's always surprises. Mm. And I feel like, you know, that's just so welcomed in my work, particularly in my creative work, because then you get to sort of have that surprise and figure out why that happened or try to recreate it. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, you know? Yeah. So it feels really alive in that way. Yeah. And that, that yellow sweater that you dyed from the goldenrod flowers is, I haven't stopped thinking about it. It just looks so (laughs) soft and the most gorgeous color. Uh, yeah, Yeah. It's delightful. It's an amazing, it's an amazing. And then there's those pairings like that. And that's what I've kind of been experimenting with more like the goldenrod flower and the wool and Mm. how they bind together in a specific, beautiful shade or the black walnut hulls and linen. It just makes this beautiful, rich brown. So yeah, I think that sort of pairing of plant and fiber is something that I'm experimenting with too. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it, it, I can imagine it must be so much fun. It's so I mean, much fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so something else I wanted to ask you actually, going back to mending, uh, and this is something that I, I'd been thinking on a bit previous to even to discovering your work was I knew that the, the idea of mending, particularly, you know, beautiful mending work like what you do has had a resurgence. And I think mm-hmm. that that's doing something to people's perspective of mending clothes because mm. previously to that, it seemed like such an old-fashioned idea that people really didn't want to have to do, you know, like darning socks mm-hmm. by the fire. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, I, I feel like there was a, a, a stigma maybe even attached to mm-hmm. having or choosing to mend our clothes. Do you feel mm-hmm. like that's shifting? Or do you, first of all, do you feel like that, that existed? And if, if so, do you feel like it's shifting? Oh, I definitely feel like that existed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I th- I wonder, though, if it's one of those things that, like, I, I often struggle with this idea of, like, the promised liberation in domesticity, yeah. right? The, like, promised liberation of, like, look, this machine will take over this task for you and you'll yes. be liberated yeah. more free time. And in some ways, great, you know, like I have a energy efficient washer and I love it. It's amazing, right? I don't want to wash all my kids clothes by hand. But like, on the other hand, there's something really wonderful about using, and we do have a energy efficient dryer too, but, but I also take a lot of the clothes and, and keep them from the dryer. And there's something really wonderful about putting our clothes out next to the wood stove on a drying rack in the mm-hmm. winter or hanging our clothes on the line in the summer and bringing them in and they have that sort of outdoor smell. And I wonder sometimes about that sort of cost of that convenience, again, back to that word that you mentioned. And having our own garden, and it's a fairly large garden, and we have young fruit trees and things like that that we've put in. I mean, there's really nothing like growing your own food and bringing it inside and eating it or eating it right in the garden. Right. So I just wonder, I wonder sometimes about that, about that kind of like false promise in some way. And that's not to say, I mean, of course, with people's lives and people's professions, I'm very happy that someone could live in an urban environment and drop into a grocery store and get a beautiful tomato and go home from work. Of course, you know, I'm glad that that's available, but I also feel like there's this connection and there's this tending that no matter how fast paced our world gets, there's something about our bodies that want to know where our food came mm-hmm. from, that want to understand how our clothes are made. We want to know how to fix our houses in, on some primal level. Even if we have all the people in place to help us with these things, there's a connection and a nurturing and a nourishment that comes, right, from understanding it. And so I think about that in terms of mending and darning. And of course, industrial, industry fashion, factory fashion, 
it was meant to sort of liberate us from having to make our own clothes and having more options with clothing at different price points and different fibers. All of that makes sense until it's not anymore making sense, right? Until it's mass produced and it's, we're casting it off at such a tremendous rate. So in that way, now it really feels, um, really feel special Mm. to have this pair of jeans that I've mended 14 times or to know how to darn a nice pair of wool socks. I didn't know how to do that. When I taught myself to do that, I realized all these nice wool knee socks that I have, I could keep forever. Right. Um, so I, I think that sometimes, yes, of course there was this stigma and I can't imagine what it would have been like a hundred years ago to be a homemaker. It'd be very different. But on the other hand, it's also, um, nourishing Mm -hmm. and contenting. And, and I do think that's changing. I mean, I think that, I think that factory fashion is at such an all time like crisis in, in terms of the pace of it, um, that I'm very curious to see where we are 20, 30, 40 years from now. And people are really interested in, in just basic repairs and just basic understanding of garment making yeah. or even buying things ethically made and just knowing who made them or wh- where the fibers came from. I think we want that connection. I think we've kind of been starved of it the past couple of decades. I, I agree completely. And I think that it has come or is coming to a a point, a tipping point, um, yeah. you know, and, and if the simple act of learning how to mend, you know what, I think people are actually kind of getting really tired of everything we feel like we need to buy to exist and, yeah. and succeed in yeah. modern society uh, is is designed with obsolescence in mind. You know, our phones yes. last two and a half years or our televisions yes. are not designed to be repaired. Our clothing is yes. going to rip within three months of, of purchasing. And I think people are really tired of it, you know, because the reality is if we are stuck in this cycle of constantly having to upgrade and buy new because the things that we buy are not lasting, it means we have to work longer hours and we have, you know, we're we're, we're giving up on other things that are important to us in order to continue to exist. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think that that you're right. Um, It's going to be fascinating to see what the next two decades holds. But, yeah. I, you know, it, if we could view mending kind of as an act of resistance it, mm-hmm. to, towards that system, then I think mm-hmm. that's a really cool way of looking at it too. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think maybe from my, like, early college days in environmental studies, I think there's always this kind of debate about, like, top-down or bottom-up mm-hmm. or where does change come from. But it's, I think probably, some people can argue with me, I'm sure, but I I imagine it's most effective when it's both, right? So you have this sort of ground up and this top-down approach. You have policies being put into place on a sort of factory industry level, but then you have grassroots efforts like ours, right? You have podcasts and crafters and classes and um, ethical fashion brands, or you have people really on that kind of grassroots level or very small-scale level that are saying, no, I'm going to do it differently because I want to, because I want to believe in a better future, right? And so I want to be part of that answer. I want to be part of that solution. I want to be part of that experiment. Um, and I do think that's what's happening with fashion right now. Mm. So there are all these ways in which we can engage and which many people are engaging. And I just hope we just really keep pushing that. I, I always say, I just want to push the doors of slow fashion open wider and wider because if it's not available to everyone, it's not working. And so we have to also stop and think like, well, what would this look like in a different climate? What would this look like in a different culture? What would this look like in a different budget? You know, how does this look for a single mom with three kids yes. versus 
this couple with no kids, this person goes to work and takes a two hour commute. This person works from home, right? I mean, we have all of these various lives and that's so wonderful. We get to connect with all of these various people through, through our internet and through social media, but it has to be, it has to get broader and broader. And I feel really insistent about that No, and <laughs> because I, yeah. that's how it's a movement. That's how it's not just a the fringe interest. Exactly. I think otherwise it, it remains a trend almost or becomes a trend rather than a movement. Exactly. And I think exactly. you've written before, uh, and I agree with you 100%, about slow fashion needing to be an inclusive movement. Um, like you say, yeah. inclusive of all circumstances, inclusive of all genders, all locations, all circumstances, because otherwise yeah. it, it feels like it could very easily become or be perceived as something that is only for a certain subset of the community, you know, and I think Absolutely. That that's... That would be devastating to the yeah. entire movement, you know, and I agree with you Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, too, because I think it, well, it, it would be heartbreaking, you know, if it did just become something that was available to the sort of elite yeah. population or, or folks that just had a lot of disposable income. But the other thing that I'm constantly reminded of, and I'll have, you know, um, comments, people will remind me or someone will DM me or whatever. I mean, slow fashion is just the term that we're giving it now. And we're not even really agreeing on what that term means yet, right? right? I mean, this has just been going on since the beginning of civilization. We we used to value the fiber. And if we had to still, you know, grow the plant or, or tend the animal and then um, extract the fiber and process the fiber and weave the fabric and dye the cloth and sew the cloth, we would not just throw it away Absolutely. because we'd understand the value. And so you can look across cultures, you can look across continents and you can see how people used to make and and repair and upcycle their clothing. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't the same language. And so that's always, a, I feel like that's a moment for me when things start to feel really tight, really tight, really tight. And then that's kind of that like, oh, that pull back away feeling and things feel big again is when you can say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is just what we're calling it now, yes. right? Yeah. This was just, this was just practical. This just made sense for many people over many hundreds thousands of years um so yeah so that that's always really inspiration for me and that helps me kind of get out of any little uh, moment that's happening maybe online or whatever and pull back and say okay wait a minute let's look across continents let's look across time what were people doing and yeah. then I feel grounded again right and then it feels like it's possible again I think that's a really helpful piece of advice actually you know because indigenous cultures were weaving baskets for example thousands of years ago they didn't call them yes. artisan baskets they were just of course vessels yes. you know that were required yeah. and I think yeah, that exactly. that's a really helpful perspective for us where we you know often get stuck in this kind of last 20 years sort of time bubble and you expand your vision and think okay all right. This has been yes. around for much longer. Yeah. And that's like people will often ask me, you know, about the Japanese sashiko mending, which I'm hugely influenced by. And I always want to pay homage to that. And I always want to, um, you know, just kind of pay respect for that. And yeah, and, and Boro more specifically and um, sort of Boro garments in northern Japan and mm -hmm. Sashiko came out of Boro. But in it, that's hugely influential to me. But also, as you look across continents, then you have like the compass stitching in India, you have uh, American patchwork and um, you have European darning and you have the Japanese kanta. And, you know, and you just start looking or I'm sorry, the Indian content and, and the Japanese Sashiko and you just start realizing, oh, right. And if I keep going each culture yeah. is going to have its own form of using patches and stitches to keep using that fiber because the fiber had so much value. 
And so, you know, I mean, if I think of my grandmothers in upstate New York making their quilts, you know, a hundred years ago, I mean, they weren't going to call it like creative redesign, right? right? right. Or like, <laughs> I mean, they weren't, but that's what they were doing. Or I'll get people in classes, um, you know, who remember how to turn a collar um, or to turn a dress inside out uh, once it had faded and had a lot of wear on the outside or these skills that are sadly, um, you know, almost extinct. Mm. And, and that's really kind of amazing because it's fast fashion. A lot of folks kind of debate when it started, but it started sometime in the 90s or early 2000s. Right. And so if you think about that, I mean, it's not going back too many generations that had to know how to do these things. And yet it can so quickly, I mean, I think about that with food too, but it can so quickly in just one or two generations be gone. That's incredible. See, I mean, I, had, I didn't know the history at all, but I would have said earlier than that, just because mm-hmm. of how you know, all encompassing it feels. Yeah. The, the fact that that's been in my generation. I was born in the 80s, you know, 82 oh, I was yeah. born. So, like, that's been since I was a, a kid. I mean, my mum made almost all of my clothes when I was a kid and that right. stopped, um, not just right. in my house, right. but just across the board. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, even in the 90s, so the sort of pacing in the 80s and the 90s, the pacing of fashion and purchasing was different. I can remember being a teenager and, you know, in the early 90s and going through the mall. And like, I can remember where how the storefronts looked. I can remember when the gap came into our little mall. Mm. I can remember that was a big deal, right? Not to call out certain brands, but I can remember like there was the jeans section. And then I can remember when the, when the windows would change over. It was a big deal, right? It was like the recognition of like season changing or uh, something, holidays coming or whatever. And now, I mean, I've read that some stores, they they change the placement of things in the stores as often as weekly so that when you walk in, you have a sense of, look, that's new. It's not new. They just moved it up there or it is new because they get a new shipment every six to eight weeks. But I mean, we had back to school shopping, we had summer shopping, and maybe if we were going somewhere special, we might go buy some, you know, clothes to take with us. But it it wasn't like this. It wasn't just this ongoing shopping. So yeah, I mean, that's just in my lifetime too. Yeah. The, the culture around shopping has changed so much. It's inc- uh, truly incredible. Um, I mean, I'd love to dive into that with you more, but I'm aware that our, our time's coming to an end. What, one thing I wanted to ask before we, we go, uh, aside from purchasing your incredibly beautiful book, Mending Matters, is there somewhere that people listening who want to start moving away from fast fashion can do? What's the first thing that you would suggest that people would, would do to start, I guess, recalibrating their relationship with fashion? Yeah. Um, I mean, I always say just start with that next garment. Yeah. So like that next garment that you're going to purchase, just stop, just pause, right? It's like, put the credit card down and just think like, do I need this? Do I love this? will I wear it for X amount of years? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's, will I wear it for three years or will I wear it for 10 years? And I find sometimes that's enough. Like just that slowing down is enough. Or if you want to make a garment, like just make the goal of just one garment. Mm -hmm. Start with a really simple pattern, you know, and a fabric or color that you really love. Or if you want to mend something, just mend one pair of jeans. Like I, I really feel like we can approach it with this, if we were to approach slow fashion in terms of, oh, let me just overhaul my wardrobe, I mean, that'd be catastrophic because right. what are you going to do with all the things you already own, right? Absolutely. So I think it is just that sort of like, yeah, just start with that next garment. And I, I think it's just like kind of slowing down and bringing awareness to what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if it's because you need a pair of jeans and you love those jeans and you think you'll wear them for five years, maybe that's enough, mm-hmm. right? 
But if it's because this thing is like trendy and on sale and like, why not? Maybe that's not, you know, the reason. (laughs) But yeah, I I find that a lot of times like that's enough for people to to get started. And that that feels doable. You know, everyone can ask themselves questions. Everyone can embrace the pause just for a moment. Um, exactly just for a moment yeah yeah well Katrina thank you so much for your time uh this was really a a fantastic conversation I'm very inspired to go and I actually (laughs) both of my jeans that I traveled with have worn away at the upper thigh and I have set them aside particularly to look at after our conversation so I'm going to go and and see I will keep you updated on my efforts That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And you should know that's the most popular place that women's jeans tend to wear out yeah. is the upper thighs. That's where so I always people don't want to talk out. about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. mermaid <laughs> totally thighs forever. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Thanks, Katrina. You too. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.